could fellowship and lay eyes on you, and we're glad to have you tonight. And uh, we hope that those who joined us online are going to have a beneficial time as well. Uh, we're glad that you decided to log on and listen tonight. Uh, we have a few announcements and prayer requests we want to keep everyone aware of. Uh, this week, Trenice Grill, many of you have heard, uh, she suffered a heart attack on the 12th of October, and uh, she had to have two stents put in, uh, but she could come home as early as tomorrow, they're saying. And so please keep Scott and the kids in your prayers as they go through this tough time with Trenice. And we love Trenice and want to get her back to her normal health. Uh, you can also visit our health update page for any other post and latest on any others that we need to keep in mind uh, as we go throughout our week. We have a few announcements. I want to remember October 25th, we're going to be having our Sunday night assembly. Afterwards, we're going to be having a trunk and treat in the upper parking lot. Uh, the kids are going to be going from car to car, like usual, collecting candy and treats, uh, but there will be no activities or games afterwards uh, after that event. So trunk and treat the 25th after Sunday night service. Uh, please take a moment to fill an online attendance card on our Watch Live page. Scroll down to uh, where it talks about attendance and please fill that out and you can put any prayer requests or comments for the elders and ministers to be aware of or if you need something added to the bulletin. Uh, please don't forget that this Sunday night we have a great opportunity, October 18th, to have a moment and a period of unity as we come together this Sunday night and we have a panel discussion and have a, a panel on unity at 6 p.m. Uh, this is going to be in place of Ministers of the Roundtable for one week. We're going to have a panel discussion involving six men, uh, Doug Cole, myself, and Stan Quinn will be on that panel as well as John Iverson Jr., James Morris, and Wayne Reeves. Uh, Kyle is going to be moderating that forum, so please come and be a part of that, and it's going to be a very uplifting time for our congregation. This Sunday, also, we're going to have worship at 10 a.m., Bible classes at 9 a.m., and we will not be having ministers at the round table, but just to get you accustomed to that, that'll be at 6 p.m. going forward for a little bit. We're going to have in-person in the auditorium. Uh, masks are recommended as you enter and exit, and in person in the fellowship hall, mask only, and we're all obviously going to have online, and please again remember this unity forum as we get ready uh, for that this Sunday. Before we go into the Word of God tonight in our study, would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've blessed us with to live and to be here with one another tonight and to log on to listen to a portion of your word tonight. We pray that we will, as we open up the word, as we get ready to listen to your will for our life, that we will remove the things that would hinder us from uh, truly focusing and listening and understanding what you are trying to say through your inspired work of Hebrews. Thank you so much thus far for the study that we've had. We pray that it has been beneficial to all those who have been listening. We pray that tonight it will again be a, a, a period of benefit that we can all walk away challenged and inspired and edified and built up as we try to march closer and closer to you and to your will as we walk side by side with one another. 
Please be with us in this period. Keep us safe and keep us focused. And thank you so much for Jesus who brings us the things that we're talking about in this book and brings us together tonight. It's the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be starting our seventh week, I believe, of Hebrews, the better letter. Uh, Kevin, can you turn me down just a little bit? Thank you. Hebrews, the better letter. As we get into this text tonight, we need to remember uh, some of the things that we've talked about last week and the week before that, before we just get into our text tonight in the book of Hebrews. Last week, uh, we began the discussion on how Jesus gives us a better hope. Last week, we were in Hebrews chapter 6. As we went through that chapter, we talked about how Jesus, in, or the writer of Hebrews, is no longer going to be comparing Jesus to these Old Testament heroes anymore throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. Instead, he's going to be comparing Jesus and the new covenant to the old covenant and the theological foundations found in the old law compared to what it is now in the new law. If you'll remember last week, we also talked about uh, again, remember, Jesus is greater than all these different people, all these different heroes, all these different people that they looked up to. And we talked about that last week. And He is greater than all of these individuals, all these heroes, all these different groups of people because, as Hebrews 2 and verse 8 says, He has put all in subjection under Him. He left nothing that is not put under Him. Him. So this is what we've been studying about so far in the study uh, of the book of Hebrews. And, and tonight we're going to be talking about a whole other subject in chapter 8. But specifically last week, as we talk about and remember what we were talking about, we looked at how the audience needed to leave the elementary principles. They needed to leave the first oracles. They needed to progress in their faith, in their knowledge of of Christ, We saw how hope is the anchor of the soul, right, in verse 19. We saw how the hope that we have in Christ is sure and it is steadfast. We discovered our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is located in heaven. And we get to partake in this hope because of Jesus' eternal high priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. However, we realize that it does not matter how great the anchor is, how great the anchor that Jesus gave us, how great this hope is, if our boat is not built to withstand the storm. If we are not actively progressing in our faith, if we are not exercising our senses to discern good and evil, as the writer would put it, if we are not the soil that produces usefulness, then we will be just like the thorns and briars. We will not be able to withstand the temptation, the devices of Satan, or the storms of life that might come. No matter how great our anchor given to us by Christ may be. Remember our, uh, also as we get into this text tonight, as we look at our study, last week we studied chapter 6, so your thought might be, let's talk about chapter 7. Well, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago as we discussed Jesus as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We took chapters 5 and 7 and we did those together. So we are now ready to launch our study tonight 
in Hebrews, the 8th chapter, as we are going to be studying how Jesus gives a better covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. So go ahead and be turning to that in your copy of God's Word tonight. Before we get into the text itself, we need to kind of understand the covenant. What is this idea of covenant? We need to have the context for what the word covenant means in certain instances of the covenant that God has made with man throughout all the context of the whole of God's Word. And the idea of covenant is throughout the entire Bible. When we talk about covenant, this is not new to the audience of Hebrews. They knew exactly what was meant by the word covenant. I hope it's not new to our audience tonight, because if you've been in uh, the church, if you've been studying the Bible any amount of time, it's possible, it's even probable that you've heard the word covenant. Because of the Old Covenant, because of the New Covenant. We hear this word all the time, but we may not understand what exactly it means. But throughout God's Word, we see multiple covenants taking place between God and man. And as we get into this discussion, we've got to understand again, to have our greatest asset to understand the book of Hebrews, our greatest supplemental reading, our greatest commentary on the book of Hebrews and understanding it is what? The Old Testament. So let's go back to the Old Testament and, and study for a little bit about what this idea of covenant means. Well, first of all, the Greek word for covenant is diatheke. And this idea, this definition would be a will, a testament, or agreement containing certain privileges and responsibilities. This is the idea of covenant. It's a will. It's, it's a testament or it's an agreement between two parties. And they're going to be containing privileges and responsibilities. The word covenant, diatheke, is used 21 times in the book of Hebrews alone. 21 times this one word is used as the writer of Hebrews goes throughout his book. And this idea is a legal agreement, really. This is a legal term. So as we understand, this is very serious. It's a contract between two parties. My question tonight is, can we make covenants with one another? You and I, as, as we are on the same level, as we, I, no one is more uh, superior to me as I am to you, we are both on the same level, can we make covenants with one another? Absolutely we can. Now, we might not phrase it that way. We might not use, uh, I just made a covenant with this person. That's a little antiquated, isn't it? It's a little uh, odd. It's a little weird language for us to think about in our context today. But we definitely could make a covenant with each other today. However, we want to ex explain and understand exactly what a covenant was in ancient times. In the biblical times, in the scriptures, what would a covenant consist of? What would it be about? Well, in ancient times, we know that a covenant was made by the superior and was simply given to the inferior. The lesser would be the one that accepted the demands, the responsibilities. And by doing so, because of his acceptance or submitting to these responsibilities, the superior, the greater, would promise to take care of them, the lesser. 
Let me explain that again. The covenant that we find in the Bible in ancient times was given to the lesser by the superior. God giving it to man. And man was not able to dictate what they wanted in this contract, in this agreement, in this covenant. God laid the foundations of it and man was to accept it. Well, sometimes we have the idea that we can make our own suggestions to God. God, I know you want, you want it this way, but let me, uh, let me bargain with you this way. Let me have this and you can take that and I'll give you this and let me take that. Well, that's not what we find in Scripture. God laid the foundation of the covenant, and the inferior, that is you and me, are the ones who accept it. And because we accept it, because we sign on to the responsibilities and demands given in the covenant, God promises that He will take care of us, that He will bless us because of it. And obviously, another component that we find in Scripture, in the Bible, in all of the whole of the Bible, is that each of these covenants that we find, almost all of them, if not all of them, are sealed with blood. Sealed with a sacrifice to make the contract official. Now, if you were to go back and look at the context of Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, uh, 6 through 8, we can see God giving a covenant, making a covenant with Noah. And if, if you will go ahead and, and turn to that, to look at this for reference as we try to understand what a covenant is. Here in Genesis chapter 8 especially, we're going to see God make a covenant with Noah after the great flood that cleansed the world full of wickedness and evil. But what was the promise that He made to Noah? What was the covenant that He made with Noah? In Genesis chapter 8. Please turn there as we look in verse 20. In Genesis 8 and verse 20 it said, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a, smooth, a, a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now fast forward to chapter 9 and verse 9 as it says, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. And every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I know that's a lot of verses, that's a lot of, of text as we look at this covenant that God made between Himself and Noah. But what was the promise that He made to Noah? He said, I will never again flood the earth. This is a promise to you for perpetual generations. How long is this covenant and this promise going to last? As long as the earth lasts. 
What was the sign of this covenant? What was, the, what was the sign that he gave that he was going to make this covenant between God and man? Well, he placed a rainbow in the sky. Do we still see rainbows today? Every time you see a rainbow, it should take you back to Genesis chapter 8 as we understand that that is God promising us He will never flood the entire earth again. Now, there will be floods, hurricanes, and tsunamis, and, but it will never cover the entire earth and wipe out all of mankind ever again. This is just one example of the covenant that God makes between Himself and man. The Noahic covenant. There's also the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Davidic covenant that we could talk about as we look at Scripture, as we look at them for reference. But understand what were the components of all of these covenants. They're all the same. God making a promise to man, the superior making the demands and the responsibilities, and the lesser accepting them. And because they accepted these covenants, these these demands, these responsibilities, God took care of them. So tonight we're going to be talking about another covenant. Another covenant that God made with man. Each time we talk about covenant going forward, if you've never known this, I'm sure this is very fundamental, elementary for you tonight, but all covenants in the Bible have the same components. They're all sealed with blood. The Noahic covenant, remember, it says that he sacrificed of all the beasts of the field and all the beasts of the air and all the different things that he listed there. Every single time it's sealed with blood, and that's very important as we look at our covenant tonight. Because of man's willingness to adhere to the demands and responsibilities, God's going to bless them. Remember that as well. But tonight, the writer of Hebrews is going to be comparing the Mosaic covenant to the covenant found through Jesus Christ. So go ahead as we set that tone for tonight. Go ahead and be turning to Hebrews chapter 8 if you're not already there. Look back at chapter 7 and verse 22. This is the first use of the word covenant, the Atheke. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. This really sets the stage for our discussion tonight as we're talking about Jesus giving a better covenant. This verse says that exact phrase. Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. Why? What is this word surety? What is this idea the writer is referring to? He's saying that Jesus is the guarantee. He is the one that is going to be carrying out the agreement, carrying out the covenant that has been made. He is the surety or the guarantee of a better covenant found in the law of Christ. Well, what is that covenant? Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 for kind of our theme verse for tonight. It says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. In short, as we look at this, Jesus is the one who provides and established a better covenant because His is built on better promises. A lot of use of the word better, huh? But that's what the writer of Hebrews used. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better 
gives a better covenant because of its better promises. That's why our study is Hebrews, the better letter. With that, we're ready to get into our text for tonight. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, as we look at it, it says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Let's stop right there. I love how the writer of Hebrews always gives a summary of the things he has said. A lot of times he uses the word therefore. Sometimes he only uses the word for, but he's always connecting and always clarifying and always explaining what he has just said. And I think this might be the most emphatic way he's done that so far. He starts out by saying, hey, listen, this is the main point of all the things I've been saying. Again, remember in chapter 7 he's talking about the high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 6 he had to take a break to where they could ever understand what, it, what in the world he was talking about in the first place. And in chapter 5 again he's talking about the high priesthood according to the order of Levi or Aaron. So in chapter 8 to begin a, a whole new discussion he's saying, listen, I'm going to close this off. This is the main point of all, all the things I've been trying to say in the last three chapters in the last three you know, pages of your Bible, maybe, this is what I've been trying to say. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. There are so many different examples that that the writer of Hebrews gives about how Jesus is the high priest. Well, this is the final one. This is the main point, the main matter of he's been trying to get at. He's trying to say, look, this is what I've been coming to. Basically, in a nutshell, this is what it's all been leading to. And the first reason that we're going to be studying tonight as to why Jesus gives and provides a better covenant is because Jesus is such a high priest. It says, because we have such a high priest. What is this high priest that we have? We've talked about him a lot. We've talked about a lot of the different things about the high priesthood. But our high priest is such a high priest that it says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this idea of being seated? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, if you were to look at the different images that maybe the Egyptians wrote in hieroglyphics or other uh, uh, pagan cultures wrote about or drew about, we'll see their different gods. The different gods that they had in their different cultures. All the pagan gods. And in almost all these images, they're seated. And the other followers and the, and the people that worshipped them were standing. You know, in our culture, those who stand have a lot more uh, dominance, a lot more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot more, uh, there it is, I'm out of words. Power! There's one. The one who are standing has a lot more power. I think I'm sitting, that's why I don't have the power I usually, you know. Authority, absolutely. Thank you, Todd. Those who are standing in our culture have a lot more authority. But in the ancient Near East, in the biblical times, those who are seated have a lot more authority. 
And here Jesus is said to be seated at the right hand of the throne on high. He is exalted. He is superior to all others. And it is very evident by this verse. Not only is he seated, not only is he seated at the, at, in this heavens, it matters where he is seated. It says he is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You ever heard the phrase right hand man? Well, he's my right hand man. Jesus Christ is God the Father's right hand man. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says he's been made this minister of the sanctuary. Let's talk about that as we continue. But before we progress, remember the covenant that we get through Christ is better than because we have such a high priest. Let's continue in our text. Verses 2 and 3 say, uh, we're going to repeat the verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See, you shall make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That's a lengthy verse, but there's a lot to be said about this passage. Someone once said, uh, Lightfoot said, Christ is the real priest in the only real place where sin can be dealt with. And that's heaven. In the presence of God. Notice what he's saying here. Jesus Christ is the real priest in the real place in the only real place that sin can really be dealt with. Sin cannot really be dealt with here on earth. Sin has to go before the throne of God to be forgiven. And all these different sacrifices that were rolling forward and forward and forward throughout the Old Testament, they were going before God, but they could, they could not go before God because the perfect sacrifice had not been given. So they just rolled forward and forward and forward until Jesus, who in the real priesthood in the real place where sin can be dealt with he dealt with it in heaven among the presence of God notice going back to verses 2 and 3 no one else has ever mediated a covenant or or a a law from the very presence of God Moses mediated his covenant at the tabernacle and all throughout the wilderness as he walked about and all throughout the Old Testament the covenant was mediated, it was carried out in the temple in Jerusalem, in Zion, right? But no one has ever done it from the very throne room of God but Jesus Christ has. In this true tabernacle which the Lord erected, not man. That's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus mediates from. What is this sanctuary, this tabernacle that has been built by God alone? That's heaven, right? In chapter 4, we talked about it being the place where the saints would rest. In chapter 11, we're going to be talking about it as this better city. 
In chapter 12, we're going to be talking about it as this unshakable kingdom. But remember back to chapter 5 and verse 1 when it talks about the qualifications or the work of a, of a priest. Here again we're seeing that the writer of Hebrews is giving one of these qualifications again by saying the priest has to be the one that offers something. So he's saying Jesus must have offered something to become high priest, to be high priest. Well, we've talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. What did he offer? Well, the text itself, if we were to just look at this text, is kind of ambiguous. It doesn't really go into what he offers. It just says that he has to offer something. He has to offer something. But what does he offer? Obviously, the text continues by saying he offered his own life. How do we know that? Well, because the writer reminds us, he's indicating to us, that he's no longer on earth. He's no longer on earth, so how could he be offering sacrifices? He's given his life as this gift, as the sacrifice. These others were the ones, it says, as a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. They offered sacrifices. Jesus is not a copy. Notice he's saying that all the high priests, all the people like Moses, all these other people were operating under a facsimile. You know that word? An exact copy of the things that God asked them to prepare. But it was not the original. It was not the real deal. The real McCoy. What was? Well, that would be heaven. These were just types of heaven. These copies, these shadows, the tabernacle, the temple that they built, these were just shadows, these were just copies of what God had in the heavenly places. So God is, t the writer of Hebrews is telling them, Jesus ministers from a better place. Jesus ministers from a better place as the better high priest with the better sacrifice in the better tabernacle. That's a word full. But that's exactly what the writer is saying. So the first reason, Jesus is giving us a better covenant. Why? Because He is such a high priest. Number two, why? Because He ministers in a better place. And number three, the third reason Jesus gives us a better covenant is because His covenant is established on better promises. Let me see here. I think I've lost the slide. Let's read here. Verses 6 through 7. But now he has obtained a much more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. 
from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What a passage that we find in God's Word here. When it comes to this new covenant, when it comes to this better covenant, we see that Jesus, in chapter 7 and verse 22, is the surety of it. And in chapter 8 and verse 6, He is the mediator of it. He is the mediator of this better covenant and the surety of it. Now the text is going to go on to explain how the former covenant had faults. The former covenant had faults. In verse 8, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, I'll make a new covenant. The old covenant, the old law, had faults about it. And he's going to mention this prophecy that you can go back and find in Jeremiah chapter 31, and verse 31 through 34. Jeremiah, in the times of Jeremiah, the we, you know, this prophet that wept, that wasn't listened to, no one listened to him at all, he prophesied that this would happen. That God was going to establish this new covenant between man. This covenant would be a whole lot different. This covenant was going to be one that could not be disregarded. It says that they disregarded His last covenant. Verse 9, They did not continue my covenant, so I disregarded them the same way that they disregarded God. This covenant is going to be different because it's not going to be one that you have to fully explain and fully talk about. It's going to be written on their hearts and minds. You're not going to have to explain. You need to know the Lord because they're going to know me. Not only that, he promises that he's, this, this covenant is going to built, be built upon mercy, on forgiveness that He's going to forgive our sins and our lawless deeds, and He will remember them no more. What an amazing promise. What an amazing prophecy that Jeremiah gives all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 31. That God is going to be establishing this covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. But it's going to be a whole lot different than the ones He made with His fathers. He's going to put our, His law in our mind, write Him in our hearts. He's going to be our God. We're going to be His people. And not only will He forgive our sins, it says He will forget our sins. This is that covenant that we live in today. This is the covenant that is available to anyone on the face of the earth. A covenant between God and man through Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this idea about the old covenant being flawed. Why was the old covenant flawed? Well, it was flawed because it was not designed to last forever. It was not designed to be everlasting a covenant between God and man. It was built and made simply to be a tutor to bring us to Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Some say schoolmaster 
to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The old law, this old covenant, was simply a tutor to bring us to Christ. Therefore, it was not made to be lasting forever. It was not made to last forever. It was made to bring us to Christ. Galatians talks about the fullness of time, until the fullness of time came to bring us to Christ. The law was perfect in that it did exactly what God wanted it to. So yes, it is flawed because it was not intended to last forever, but it was perfect in the intention that God gave it. And that is to bring us, bring this people to the time of Christ. But this covenant was like some deals you see on TV. Limited time only. This is a limited time only deal. This covenant between Moses and God. It was also imperfect when you look at the old law. It was also imperfect because it could not save man totally. It could not totally redeem man. It simply rolled their sins forward and forward each and every year. As long as they were doing the sacrifices, their sins rolled forward and forward. But as we talked about earlier, sin can only really be handled in the presence of God. So until Jesus came, those sins were never fully redeemed. But at the point Jesus died, at the point He sacrificed Himself, His sacrifice retroactively went backwards in time to save and to redeem all those people from the time of Moses and beyond. And it goes forward to our sins and to the sins that will come. That's how great Jesus' sacrifice is. You know the ultimate fault of the old covenant, the old law, you know what it was? The people that had to follow it. The ultimate fault and the ultimate shortcoming of the old law was the people trying to, to feel, fulfill it. You know, there are 613 some odd commands that we find in the law of Moses. 613 some odd commands in the Old Covenant. Guess who could fulfill them all? Only one. Only one person in the history of the Old Covenant could fulfill it. And that was Jesus Christ. The New Covenant that Jesus offers is attainable. It is possible for all the followers because Christ has taken the heavy burden away from us. And it set the example for all of us. So because of all of this, because of all the things we've talked about, because Jesus is such a high priest, because Jesus ministers from a better place, and because Jesus' covenant is built on better promises, we can know that we have been given a better covenant. These are the three points that we see in the chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews. Because of all these things, because he is such a high priest, because he's from a better place, because he's built on better promises, because of all of that, 
we have a better covenant. And let's listen to what's going to happen to the old one. Verse 13. It says, In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus, in and of Himself, in and of Himself, utterly destroyed and abolished and has made the old covenant, the old law, obsolete. To the point that it is vanishing away. Let's go back to read this uh, prophecy of Jeremiah in verses 8 through 12. Just look at all of the things that the covenant that was to come. I love how, I lo- I love how the writer of Hebrews, he doesn't go on a big list or a big explanation of, you know, like he did between the angels and Moses and Joshua and all these things. He simply just lets the prophet Jeremiah speak for how great the new covenant is. By saying all the things that Jeremiah said, he gives that quote. Basically, here are the things that Jeremiah talked about. The new covenant is going to be built on hope. The new covenant is going to be built on hope that God is going to make this new covenant between Israel and the house of Judah. The second thing is that God is going to be building this covenant on the hearts and the minds of the people. God is going to be building a covenant that impacts the individual person just as much as it impacts the universe. See that covenant from the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, guess who it was for? The Israelites. But this covenant is going to be for all nations and all people for all time. This covenant that Jeremiah talked about is built on grace and forgiveness. And this covenant is eternal and final. Tonight I know that some of this may have been a little bit uh, academic, a little bit deep. Maybe you thought it was not deep enough. Somebody's going to be frustrated and upset no matter what. Hopefully you don't feel that way. Uh, I try to teach in a way that doesn't go that way, but sometimes that happens. But as the Hebrews writer said in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. Allow me to say that tonight as we look at our application. As we look at the main point of what we are trying to say tonight in this study, the main thing is that the covenant found in Jesus Christ is better than any covenant that God has ever promised to any other being in the history of mankind. The covenant that we find in Scripture through the book of Hebrews, through the New Testament, it is so infinitely better than any that has come before. And there will be none coming after. The covenant that God has made through Jesus Christ is the final covenant. It is the final covenant between God and man that God is going to establish this promise, these responsibilities that we are to, as the inferior, submit to. And yes, it was sealed by blood. 
Jesus Christ's blood was shed on the cross for all of us. His sacrifice, His blood, every drop was the seal of the covenant that God is making between you and I and Him tonight. Tonight I want each of you, as we think about what it would be like to be a first century or throughout the Old Testament Hebrew person. Just the average Hebrew person that we find in the Old Testament. Imagine what that would be like with me. Sure, they were the chosen race. They were the chosen nation of God. They were God's special people. In fact, they were able to witness His power. They were able to see all the things that God did. They had Him on their side, the Creator of the universe, on their side. They were able to defeat the surrounding armies of Canaan and many other armies like the Philistines throughout the book of Judges. They were able to witness God's greatness time and time again. And they were the beneficiaries of His power over and over throughout the Old Testament. Man, that sounds like I want to be the average Hebrew to see God's greatness, to see God's power in action, the miraculous things that He did in their presence. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's just half the story of what it would be like to be in the Mosaic Covenant. The other half of the story is much more difficult. You know why? To sum it up, it was a works-based salvation. It was meritorious. You had to earn your salvation. If you do the 613 commandments, then your sins are going to be rolled forward. If you go to the offer the animal sacrifice all the time, then your sins are going to be rolled forward another year. If you fall away, then the wrath, the vengeance of God is going to be upon you and you will fall into the enemy's hand. You'll be sent into captivity over and over again. If you don't work your way to salvation, then there's nothing else for you. Who wants to sign up for that? Raise your hand. Who wants to work their way to salvation? Who wants to earn their own salvation and have to work for it to the point that if you don't, if you don't meet all the standards, if you don't meet the expectations of the 600 some odd commands that we find in the Old Testament, then you're toast. Who wants that? Can you imagine this life? Constantly worried about which law you forgot today. Which command you, you, you neglected to follow today. You know, there are some who live their life today in the Christian covenant in the same manner. I'm not saying we don't have to obey. I'm not saying we don't have to follow all the statutes of God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey all the things that we can and all the things that we are told to command, absolutely we are supposed to follow those commands. But whereas the Old Testament, the Old Law, the Old Covenant was built on works, the New Covenant was built in conjunction with faith. What would the passage say earlier? 
when faith has come, we're no longer in need of a tutor. We'll talk about that in a minute. Look at how Paul would describe the law in Romans chapter 8. If you can turn there, Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. I don't have it on the screen, but please turn there. Romans 8 and 3, it says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What is Paul saying? Paul says that the old law, the old covenant, was weak. Why? Because like I said earlier, the people following it were weak. And since the people who were following the old law and the old covenant were weak, he had to send his son. Why? Because there was a requirement that the old law be fulfilled, that the old law be completed, that the old law finally be followed by someone perfectly. And only Jesus Christ could ever do that. And that's exactly what he says, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus Christ, His own Son, came in the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin. And because of His life, He condemned sin. Because of His life, He filled the righteous requirement for us. Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What's he saying? Living by the letter of the law so legalistically that you have to build circles around the law so as not to break the law. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They had the 613 commands. They said, you know what? Just to where we don't break the 613, let's add another 1,472. I don't know what it was. Let's add a whole other circle around the 613 that God's given us just so as we don't break those 613. So legalistic to the point that they had no freedom, they had no real relationship with God. You look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, how many of them had a relationship with God? Instead, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Brood of vipers. They had no relationship with God. They had a relationship to the law. And that was the law of the commandments that they wrote more so than the law that God wrote. The Spirit gives life. And because Jesus came and fulfilled every jot, every tittle, as He says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus came to fulfill every jot, every tittle according to that verse. Because of that, we now have a covenant that is based upon the Spirit based upon the freedom of being in Christ, a covenant that is based on faith as well as obedience. It is when our faith works in conjunction with our works, as we've talked about in the book of James, that God is satisfied. The lives of all the nation of Israel who came before Christ was difficult. Way more difficult than any one of us would be able to bear. 
Which one of us could fill the law of the Old Testament? I'm not signing up for that. After I've seen the covenant we've been given, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not going and getting a, a lamb every two seconds because I sinned and building a big old altar and having to spill its blood everywhere. I've killed a goat before. It is not fun. We have a goat roast in our club. Jay's smiling back there. We have a goat roast in our club at Freed Hardman. I had to kill a goat one time, and I don't want to do it again. Some of these people that love go hunting, I just don't get it. I killed a deer one time, and that was it for me. I went over there, and it was jiggling. I don't want a part of that. I'm out. But this was the daily life of someone in the Old Testament. I think that's why we, it's pretty obvious that they kept abandoning in it for all the simpler religions, all the pagan religions, all the no-committing religions that were around them. So that's the life of a Jew or a Hebrew, average Hebrew person in biblical times. More than that, I want to ask you tonight when we look at the covenant we've been given through Christ. How much reach did the Mosaic Covenant have? Who did it apply to? Just the nation of Israel. So yes, their life was hard. Yes, they had to work for their salvation. Yes, it was meritorious. But guess what? They got to have a relationship with God. Guess how many others got to have a relationship with God? How many Gentiles were able to have a relationship with God? We know that there were some God-fearers, but when it comes to a covenant, what promise had God given them? We know based off of Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, when they did things of the law without a knowledge of the law, of the covenant, they were a law unto themselves, but there was no tutor for them. There was no covenant for them. There was no relationship with God for them. And as we look at ourselves tonight, as we look at ourselves in 2020, how much of that would apply to us? I don't think I have any Jewish background in my family. I would say all of us, if not most of us, come from a Gentile background. So when we look at the covenant of Christ... Because of what Jesus did, because of His sacrifice, because of His high priesthood, because of His better covenant, He has made the old one obsolete. What a great word. Obsolete. This means never to be used again. I look at some of these... Uh, new phones that we got going on. And then you see somebody pull out a Nokia. Man, that thing is obsolete. This thing shouldn't be used. God has made the old law through Jesus Christ obsolete with this covenant He's offered all of mankind. Let's look at a few verses. Let's look at our verse, first of all, in chapter 8 and verse 13. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, For whatever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. When it comes to the new law, the new covenant, this is the trifecta of verses. It has become obsolete. We are able, because of this new covenant, to have a relationship with God. Us Gentiles are able to have a relationship with God. We don't need a law of requirements that was against us. We don't need a law that was contrary to us because He has taken it away. He has nailed it to the cross. Instead, that old law, that old covenant, has become something of our learning, for our learning, to understand better the entire will of God. Because it has been made obsolete, because it has grown old, it has vanished away. Thank God that God has given us, through Jesus, a better covenant. The covenant that bears His name. Because it is indeed better, it is indeed greater, and it is indeed superior to any covenant that He's ever offered anyone else. It's my prayer that this has convinced, it has convicted you the way it did that original audience. Can you imagine that original audience as they're sitting there reading their whole foundational life has now been made obsolete. There's a new life that they were to live in Jesus Christ. You know, I was talking about we can make covenants with each other. We can make covenants that we shouldn't make, maybe. But every day we make decisions. Every day we make promises. Every day we do things we shouldn't do. We should realize and understand that we should choose Jesus' promise and Jesus' covenants. Because compared to all those other things that we do, he makes those obsolete too. He makes those of no meaning as well. Again, the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince. He's trying to convict. He's trying to show them that Christ is better. And I hope that that has been the same message you got tonight. And I hope that is the message we get every night in this study. Thank you for your attention. Uh, please remember the Unity Forum that we're going to have this coming uh, Sunday night. We'd love for you to be there, and we'd love for you to be a part of us on Sunday night. We're going to be closed out in a word of prayer by Brother David Lovell.